There you go. That is the quickest summary of the book of Jonah that I could find. The problem is it's a little too quick because it completely leaves out chapter 4, which is where we are uh, today. So if you'll open your Bibles and your apps and such and find your way to Jonah chapter 4, we won't leave it out. We'll, we'll work through that. Let me, let me pray for us as you find your way there. Lord, be kind to us now. May this be as though it's for us, because surely it is. Uh, sweep away by your spirit now our defenses and our distractions so that we can hear from you about the condition of our souls before you. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So if I were going to describe the book of Jonah in one word, uh, one, the one word that would be in the running would surely be this, curveball. Okay? The book of Jonah is like... A ceaseless end of curveballs, surprising, unexpected twists. Think back through the book with me. Um, God commissions his prophet to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish in exactly the opposite direction. I didn't see that coming, right? The pagan sailors in chapter 1 come to fear the Lord and offer sacrifices and made vows to Yahweh. That one snuck up on me. Right? They throw Jonah overboard, a big fish that's appointed by God swallows him. That's a plot twist. Okay? The fish turns out to actually be a rescue, spits Jonah out on dry land after three days. That was a bit of a shocker. And then Jonah walks into Nineveh, preaches a five-word sermon. The whole wicked city replants in sackcloth and ashes, including the king and the animals. You know, who knew, right? So in chapter 4... There's another curveball that's thrown at us by the book of Jonah. Um, but before we unpack that, I want us to remember what Ranjur led us through last week, the beautiful message of chapter 3 of Jonah. Look at verses 5 and 6. Here's a recap. The people of Nineveh believed God. Just, just think about that. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. It's where we get the expression, sackcloth and ashes. When God saw what they did down in verse 10, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, Think about what just happened. An entire city in excess of 100,000 people among the wickedest cities, if not the wickedest city of their day, repents. All of them. This is un unheard of. Maybe in history. Okay. And I find it fascinating that the ancient city of Nineveh was located in the exact location of the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. You've heard of Mosul in the news. This is where the Islamic State, ISIS, decided to set up camp and make their showcase city back in 2014 in the city of Mosul, right where Nineveh was located. There's an article in The Guardian. The title is, The Bureaucracy of Evil, How Islamic State Ran a City. And they describe what life was like 
in Mosul for Christians during their reign. They say the Arabic letter N, Noon, for Nazarene, was graffitied onto homes and shop fronts owned by Christians. An edict demanded that Christians either convert, pay a tax, or leave with nothing. Christians were frisked at the city limits. Some were taken as hostages or sex slaves. So imagine if, rather than uh, Mosul being liberated in 2017 by the Iraqi forces as it was, imagine this city, this, this dark city, entirely repenting in sackcloth and ashes, and the members of ISIS cry out to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Imagine that. Or think back to Berlin, in 1943, the peak of Hitler's rule. Um, and imagine that all the residents of Berlin the, cried out to Yahweh, the God of the Jews, and repented of being Nazis, including the Fuhrer himself. Okay. And perhaps even more shockingly awesome, imagine God accepting their repentance and granting them mercy on the spot. See, this is, this is of a kind with what happened in chapter 3. When the entire city of Nineveh repents and believed God, and God relented, withholding judgment and forgiving this wicked city and their king on the spot. This is a stunning portrait of the mercy of God. Don't miss this, right? This is amazing mercy. Um, if it can reach Nineveh, it can reach your neighbors. If it can reach Nineveh, it can reach your enemies. If this grace can reach Nineveh, it can reach you. Okay. There no one is beyond the reach of this mercy. Okay. And if there ever was a person who was a candidate for that, a modern-day Ninevite in our culture, it might have been a lady named Carla Faye Tucker. Some of you have heard of her, heard her story. It's a remarkable story. Carla was a drug-addicted prostitute who in 1983 helped to kill two people with a pickaxe during a robbery. And she was so animalistic in her behavior that it brought her pleasure and, and her partner said he saw her smiling as she did it with every blow. Um, she was found guilty, she was imprisoned, and Carla Faye Tucker became the first woman executed in Texas since the Civil War era. But on death row, Carla Faye Tucker became a born-again Christian. And all those close to her say, you cannot question the legitimacy of her conversion experience. Shortly before her execution, she was interviewed by Larry King. And the interview is still, uh, the text is still online, the transcript. It's fascinating. This is how that interview ended. Larry King is writing about her, her countenance and her positive view. This is right before her execution. He says, um, you have to explain that to me a little more. It can't just be God. And this is what Carla Faye says. Yes, it can. It's called the joy of the Lord. She says, when you have done something that I have done, like what I have done, and you have been forgiven for it, and you're loved, that has a way of changing you. 
I mean, I have experienced real love. I know what real love is. I know what forgiveness is, even when I did something so horrible. I know that because God forgave me and I accepted what Jesus did on the cross, when I leave here, this world, I am going to be with him. So if you, you need to know this morning that if there's mercy enough for the Ninevites, there's mercy enough for Carla Fay, there's mercy enough for you. If you've been feeling like you can't fit in, you can't come in because of something you've done, there's grace for you too. But here in chapter 4, we're throwing another curveball. Because Jonah has just preached his most effective sermon ever. Maybe the most effective sermon ever. And the whole city repents, even the animals, right? They're wearing sackcloth. And Jonah is the hero, humanly speaking. Um, It was through his preaching that the city was saved. And you'd think they'd be throwing a parade in his honor. But if they did, and that parade went by, the convertible with Jonah's name on the side is empty. Jonah's nowhere to be found. He is not in the mood to celebrate. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What happened in chapter 3, the repentance of the Ninevites and God granting them mercy, greatly displeased Jonah, exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah, having received grace, does not want grace to flow to the Ninevites. And this amazingly beautiful portrait of the mercy of God, he is outraged over it. Jonah, who just experienced personally by the rescue of the big fish, God's grace and compassion and slowness to anger and his bountiful love and his willingness to relent concerning calamity is now displeased and outraged unto death at the exercise of God's mercy on behalf of the Ninevites. This is what happens when you dam up grace at the edge of your property. It turns sour in your mouth, okay? And you begin to to despise what is the most beautiful thing in the world, Jonah's at odds with God. He can't delight in God. He would rather die than align himself with God's character and purposes. And this is who God is, right? This description he gives. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. Seven times this description is used of God in the Old Testament. This is who God is. And this is where grace blockage leads a heart. Unable to embrace the goodness and mercy of God. And your heart can actually become embittered towards it. Jonah has received grace, but he will not pass it on. Jonah wants grace for me and mine, but not for them. And that sentiment is killing him. This is the second prayer 
that's recorded in the book of Jonah. The first that Jonah prayed, it's the second one that Jonah prayed, the first was in chapter 2. Remember, he prays from the belly of the fish after his rescue. Listen to his prayer then. Here's an excerpt. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. In chapter 2, Jonah's giving thanks for God's mercy towards him. But in the second prayer, in chapter 4, he's angry that the very same mercy is shown to the Ninevites. And what lies behind that, quite possibly, is a sense of superiority, right? Maybe even of merit or worth. Um, Jonah, after all, is an Israelite. He's one of the chosen people of God, and he is a prophet of God amongst those people. Comparatively, without doubt, he is better than the Ninevites. To Jonah, the Ninevites are far worse. They're godless, evil pagans. And we've talked about what a terrible culture their culture was. So it's understandable that Jonah would think like this. The Ninevites are a rough lot, and Jonah was that rare Israelite a prophet of God. And this kind of thinking seems reasonable. Seems reasonable to us sometimes too. I mean, after all, we're good folk here, right? We are uh, nice, middle-class American church-going folk. It makes sense that God would be merciful to us, right? Our motto is grace for good people. That makes sense to us, just like it probably made sense to Jonah. But it doesn't make sense to Jesus. Not at all. You remember this encounter that Jesus had with a woman who was a sinner? And she was um, kissing his feet and anointing them. And everybody was, you know, shocked by the fact that Jesus would allow this. And Jesus said to Simon, in whose home this encounter happened, Therefore I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. Jesus' motto would be something like forgiveness for folk with many sins. Okay. Now, we want to be fair with Jonah. His, his case has some merit. Okay? He's not a cartoonish figure. If this happened and we were there, we would give pause to, I imagine, Professor James... Bruckner says, insightfully writes, the center of the debate in Jonah 4 pits Jonah's perspective on strict justice against God's compassion for even the most heinous sinners. Common sense logic prevails in Jonah's perspective. The wicked should pay for their fines, for their crimes rather, not be forgiven. Evil should be punished. Justice to be just requires that people suffer the full consequences of their actions, whether they're repentant or not. Nineveh has to be destroyed in order for justice to prevail. But see, Jonah is missing something about God. And the book of James put it so succinctly. It simply says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay. That's how our God works. And so the Lord puts his counseling hat on and says to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? This is a fascinating thing for God to say. You, Jonah, you, that rebellious prophet, 
who ran 180 degrees away from my will, who endangered sailors and whole cities with your disobedience, you whose life I spared miraculously in the midst of your disobedience, by pure grace, do you have any right to be angry at my display of grace towards the Ninevites? Do you have any right to dam up grace at the edge of your property? See, God is being so very patient with his stubborn prophet. Even though Jonah persists in denying grace to others, God persists in showing grace to him. And so through Jonah's pout fest, we're learning something of great importance to us. One, we all need grace desperately. We sang about it, right? I need you. We all need grace desperately. And secondly, we must pass it on. We must pass it on. Those two are inseparably linked. If you try to separate them and dam up grace at the edge of your property, if you don't acknowledge grace and pass it on, it just stagnates like unflowing water. Grace cannot be dammed up. It makes us miserable folk who directly oppose the character and purposes of our God. So unless you can wish grace and even bear grace to even your enemies, then you probably don't understand the grace that's been given to you by a very holy God. So God here is reasoning with Jonah. And he's reasoning with us. His question is an invitation to rethink this whole situation and to repent of anger towards someone, of of withholding grace from someone. Jonah does not answer this question, but simply walks away from the conversation. And Professor Bruckner writes, God is seeking to engage Jonah in his distress, but Jonah is not ready to talk. He says in in Genesis chapter 4, Cain, you remember who had a brother named Abel? Cain was asked a similar question about his anger, and he did not answer either, but instead went out and killed his brother Abel. It makes you wonder, what is Jonah about to do? And sadly, it seems that Jonah is still murdering the Ninevites in his heart. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So for these first four verses that we've just read, Jonah evidently was still in Nineveh. So it's possible that the Ninevites might have overheard his rant against God. And you wonder, did they find comfort in Jonah's words about God that he could find no comfort in? So Jonah now perches east of the city. It's interesting, that's the exact direction that Cain went after he killed his brother Abel. Genesis 4 says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so Jonah finds a purse there, east of the city, to watch and see if he convinced God of God's mistake. Okay? That's exactly what he's doing. He's hoping that he's helped God to come to his senses and that his Godward manipulations were effective. I'll die if you do this. But God will not give up on Jonah. 
And he provides him now an object lesson. I don't know if you've ever had the sense that you were being set up by someone. Jonah is being set up by God. He has no idea. Watch, watch how it happens. In verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is unusually happy over some kudzu-like fast-growing gourd. That's what the King James calls it, a gourd. Verse 7, when, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Okay. Do you notice how sovereign God is working throughout the book of Jonah? All of creation does God's bidding. In the first chapter, there's that wind that causes the storm that was sent by God. There's the lot that falls on Jonah. There's the fish that was appointed by God to swallow him. Here we have the plant that God appointed and the worm that God appointed to take down the plant and the wind that God appointed. Now, it's this passage when I go bike riding out in the country, on the country roads around here that causes me to avoid woolly worms on my bicycle because they might just be on a mission from God. You never know, right? <laughs> but such is the sovereignty of God, right? Worms are doing his bidding. And God's sovereignty wields his mercy. And so he is giving Jonah through this object lesson, the chance to sit where God sits and think about this from God's perspective. God, what God has done here is to construct a situation where Jonah has experienced care for something, concern for something, compassion for something, and then allowed him to experience the loss of that thing. He's allowing Jonah to feel for the plant what God feels for Nineveh. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So this is Jonah's second death wish in our chapter, right? It's the third one in the book if you count his desire to have the sailors throw him overboard in chapter 1. Um, God is relentless here in pursuing Jonah. He asks him the same gentle question again, this time with a different object. Now it's not about Nineveh, it's about Jonah's beloved plant. And Jonah gives the same response, but this time it's about a different object. It's about, it's about the plant. The difference is in verse 4, Jonah wanted to die because God's mercy had been extended to the Ninevites. And now he wants to die because no mercy had been shown to his gourd. And so one, one scholar points out that Yahweh does some progress here, makes some progress with Jonah by refocusing Jonah's emotions. At the beginning of Jonah 4, Jonah is angry that someone, the Ninevites, didn't die. And at the end, he is angry that something, the vine, did die. 
This tiny window is the opening that Yahweh creates in Jonah's emotion to help him, help him understand the Creator's perspective. Verse 10, the Lord said to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also much cattle? So Jonah's concerned about this one kudzu-like fast-growing vine that he did not tend, he did not plant, that was here today and gone tomorrow, literally. And it's not that Jonah's wrong in his concern. In fact, God uses it because it's a good concern. If Jonah's right to care about the plant, then God is right to care about the people in Nineveh, the ignorant ones who cannot tell their left hand from their right. Okay. Um, it could just mean children who are too young to know the difference. More likely, it's a reference to the whole population who are spiritually ignorant. In our day, we might call them an unreached people group. They have no knowledge of God and no way to learn about God unless someone goes to tell them. And we see God's compassion here for the unreached. God is essentially saying to Jonah, Jonah, you are concerned about a plant that you did not make, wasn't even yours, that lived only a day. Jonah, can you understand now why I'm concerned about a great city full of 120,000 people that I created, that I love, who will live not for one day but for eternity? Professor Bruckner writes, God's primary argument here is creational. Jonah, if you're moved to pity over the destruction of a vine you did not create, shouldn't I have pity over the destruction of people and animals I did create? God loves all of his creation, for as Jonah said, he is gracious and compassionate. God invites Jonah to see the tender heart of a creator, desperate to be reconciled to the creation he has tended and made to grow. I love the way the psalm writer says it in Psalm 145. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Anger, it has been said, is just one letter away from danger. And God's remedy here for anger is compassion. He's intent that Jonah share the compassion of God for those whom he has made, whom he loves, even for the undeserving, even for his enemies. So look again at that closing verse. It's a really odd way to close the book, right? God ends it with a question. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And this is, how the, this is how the book ends, right? Boom, drop the mic, walk off the stage. That's it. And you're left kind of going, what? Where's, is there another chapter? Where's chapter five? Is there another page? What, how's Jonah respond? We don't know. We aren't told. And maybe that's because it's not really about Jonah. It's about God. And then I think it's about us. How do we respond? Maybe we're chapter 5. The book of Jonah invites us to share the compassion of God 
for those who are far from God, yet are still his creation and are loved by him. What is blocking that with respect to someone in your life? Is there someone that you don't want to hear the good news of, of Christ, the gospel of mercy and grace? Or maybe a kind of people. You remember um, what Tim Keller said, I quoted it in, when I taught chapter one. He says, what Jonah is doing is what some called othering. To categorize people as the other is to focus on the ways they are different from oneself, to focus on their strangeness and to reduce them to these characteristics until they are dehumanized. We then can say, you know how they are, so we don't need to engage with them. This makes it possible to exclude them in various ways, by simply ignoring them or by forcing them to conform to our beliefs and practices or by requiring them to live in certain poor neighborhoods or by just driving them out. So are there people you're treating as other? Um, say, trans, trans people, people who are transitioning, their gender. How do you feel about them? How do you feel about a neighbor who's from another culture? Maybe he's from another race. Maybe he dresses different, speaks another language. What about immigrants? What about people who are Muslim or, or Hindu? Kent Hughes tells a story. He says, several years ago, one of my wife's friends took a missionary furlough with her husband and family after an unusually uh, tiring season of service as a missionary. She'd been looking forward to this time with great anticipation. For the first time, she's going to have a place of her own. It's a, it's a big townhome apartment um, with a patio, and she's super creative, so she made the patio the focus of all of her energy in terms of decoration and making it feel at home. And after a few months, some new neighbors move in next door, and the word that he uses to describe them is coarse. Um, there's loud music day and night, along with a constant flow of obscenities. They urinate in the front yard in broad daylight. They totally disrupt this lady's peace. She could see nothing good in them. She asked the Lord to help her be more loving, but all she got back from her neighbors is disgust and rejection. The crisis came when she returns home to discover that her neighbor's children had sprayed orange paint all over her beautiful patio, the walls, the floors, everything. She's furious. She tries to pray but found herself crying out, I cannot love them, I hate them. And knowing she had to deal with her sin, she turns to the Lord and this scripture comes to mind. Beyond all these things, put on love. In her heart she questions, Lord, how do I put on love? And the only way she could picture it was like putting on a coat, so that's what she determined to do. She chose to wrap herself in the love of God and as a result she began to experience a deeper deeper sense of Christ within her than she ever had. So what she did then was make a list of everything she would do if she actually loved her neighbors. And then she did what she had listed. So she baked cookies. She offered to babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee. And she says, the most beautiful thing happened. I began to know and understand them. I began to see that they were living under tremendous pressure. I began to love my enemy. She did good to them. She lent to them without expecting anything back. And then the day came when her neighbors moved away and she wept. 
an unnatural, unconventional love had captured her heart, a supernatural love, the love of God. I wonder if your lack of compassion for someone or some, some group of people might be anchored to the failure to acknowledge your unworthiness of the grace that you've received. That Jesus could very well have been talking about you when he said, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. It's not grace for good people. It's grace for sinners. I love the way the old hymn puts it. Um, The lyrics are beautiful. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which which is more than liberty. There's there's no place where earth's sorrows are more keenly felt than heaven. There's no place where earth's failings have such gracious judgment given. There's plentiful redemption through the blood that Christ has shed. There's joy for all the members in the sorrows of the head. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully There is a wideness in God's mercy. It's wider than Israel for Jonah. It's wider than my tribe for me. It's wide enough for any of you who think you can't be good enough and can't measure up. There's mercy wide enough for you. Now, when I taught in chapter one, I mentioned to you that in certain Jewish synagogues, it's their custom on on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to read the book of Jonah aloud. And uh, then there's a responsive reading I've come across from the Old Testament, from the prophet Micah. And I thought it would be a fitting close for our study of the book of Jonah too if we recited it together. So if you'd stand where you are, let's, let's read this together and confess together who our God is and how wide his mercy is for us and for our neighbors. This is from Micah chapter 7. Let's recite it together. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that there's grace for all of Nineveh and for all of us and for our adversaries and our enemies. God, help us to own that, not in a keeping way, but in a giving way. Don't let us damn it up, Lord. Let us pass it on. I pray for those right now who've been deeply, horribly wronged by someone. And I pray that your grace would flow into their life in such a reparative and healing way that they cannot keep it in. It would flow even to the ones whom they fight not to hate. God, have mercy upon those in particular here who suffer and struggle in that way. And Lord, for all of us, may we bear the love of Jesus and a grace undeserved as we leave this room 
and go where we live and work and study this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's close this time in worship together.
If you're a part of our Northwake family, at the end of last year, you received a letter from me letting you know that um, our student minister, Carson Cobb, had, the elders had nominated him to join us as an elder serving in our church, and that this year our intent was to broaden his leadership responsibilities. So Carson will be preaching more. He's also helping alongside Jake to lead our elder team through a long-range planning process this year and the next. And so what we want, in the first service, we kind of commissioned him and had a chance to pray for him. And I didn't want you to be robbed of the chance to lay eyes on Carson and pray for him as well. So Carson, are you here? Did you sneak back in? And Ashley? Good. If you guys would come down, we want the church, the rest of the church here this morning to have a chance to pray for you. And uh, we prayed for them through um, 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, and I'd like to do that again. If there are any elders here, I'd like to invite you all to come down, stand with these two, and, and lay hands on them as we pray. So if you guys would come forward, got a couple. So church, let's take this time to pray the love of God upon these two and through them, right? Father, we, we acknowledge in accordance with your word that if Carson were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but did not have love, he would be but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if he had prophetic powers and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and if he had all faith so as to remove mountains, but did not have love, he would be nothing. If he gave away all that he had and delivered up his body to be burned, but did not have love, he would gain nothing. And so, Lord, we ask for he and for Ashley for a love that is patient and kind, that they would not envy or boast, they would not be arrogant or rude, they would not insist on their own way or be irritable or resentful, but they would rejoice not at wrongdoing, but with the truth. Lord, we pray for Carson that he would bear all things, because I know, Lord, sometimes we are hard to bear. And that he would believe all things, that he would trust and hope in your word with beautiful faith, that he would hope all things, hoping in the fulfillment of your greatest promise, the return of Jesus, and that he would endure all things because eldering involves suffering and hardship. God, give him strength, your strength. Lord, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. And we ask that you would lavish it upon these two, that it would be their protection, that it would be their joy, that it would mark their marriage and their parenting of their two little ones. And God, that it would pour happily through their lives into the lives of us, their church family, whom they are now charged in a new way to shepherd and care for. Bless them, Lord. Use them greatly for the name of Jesus, whom we love and who loves us so. Amen. Amen. Thank you.